Uh, so before we get started, could you all introduce yourselves by name and title uh, on the show for our listeners out there? I'm Alvaro Rodriguez. I'm the co-creator and executive producer of Seis Manos. I'm Brad Graber. I'm the co-creator and executive producer of Seis Manos. I'm Daniel Dominguez. I'm a co-EP and writer on Seis Manos. Oh, we're talking Seis Manos today? I just want to make sure we got that right. We're all here for the right show? Okay, cool. <laughs> I mean, whatever you want to talk about, Dave. I'm your uncle. I got baby. Uh, thank you so much. And also, to start off, I wanted to do kind of a wellness check just to make sure everybody's doing okay and ask how uh, you all are doing during the ongoing kind of quarantine and pandemic that we're all dealing with. I mean, I'm 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 pretty relaxed, and uh, the the work the work is steady. Uh, it's been interesting working uh, in my pajamas as opposed to in an office, but. Um, thankfully everyone, 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 I haven't really been touched by it. Everyone that I know is, is safe and well and healthy. Um, the only real effect that it has had on my life is that, uh, we got a, we got a Peloton. <laughs> so that's about it. Uh, I'm doing good too. I, I, although I can confirm that Daniel often came to work in his pajamas, they were cookie monster pajamas. So I don't think that there's been that much of a transition for him. Um, but, uh, no, I mean, I feel like, uh, you know, things are, are, are difficult. They're likely to stay that way for a while, but, uh, you know, we're hopeful. And, uh, um, you know, I think one of the spaces where, Things have been moving on without as much uh, static as other places has been in animation. Yep. Uh, so we're very hopeful that uh, that, that bodes well for Seis Manos and, and other projects. Yeah. I mean, at the studio, we've been working from home for about two months or so now. But, you know, it's got, you know, it definitely has challenges and things are difficult. But... At the end of the day, we're very lucky and privileged that we're all still working and most of our deadlines haven't shifted and, you know, people are looking to do more animation. So it has been, um, you know, not as hard on us as it has been on others. Yeah, you know, over the last uh, six or eight weeks or so, most of the folks I get to talk to are in the animation industry. So whether they're creators, uh, voice actors... You know, I've heard a lot of stories about how animation is, isn't is just negatively impacted the way live-action productions might be, but they've actually seen an uptick in a lot of work. So have, can you guys comment on how some of the industry things have maybe changed for you, if at all? Sure. I mean, at, at the end of the day, like, um, it, there are definitely a lot more calls coming in for people trying to figure out how to do things in animation. Like, uh, we probably get... 10 to 15 people contacting Tower House about music videos almost daily uh, just because, you know, there's not a way to do them in live action currently. So it, it definitely has garnered a lot more interest. And, you know, there are artists uh, who, you know, it doesn't change an animator's day all that much. You know, they're sitting in front of their Cintiq and drawing and conversating VIM most of the time. So, like, there actually might be a little bit of a productivity bump for the artists right now because they're not getting interrupted by stupid meetings all the time. Uh, that being said, you know, it's a uh, producers are having to work double time trying to keep everybody, you know, on task and, you know, calling around and checking in on things and managing systems where people are not all in the same space. Um, all of that being said, yeah, there definitely seems to be new interest in doing more animated projects right now. So, yeah. I mean, I don't know. Like I, I, I was pretty busy before and I'm, I'm pretty busy still, but like 
it's definitely, I don't know, the, the, the uptick is certainly correct. I, I remember one of my favorite things when I got into therapy was learning how to say no, and now I take incredible pleasure in it. So it is fun getting to say no more. <laughs> And then with all the kind of difficulties that come with this too, there are some silver linings. It's been interesting to watch how uh, animation companies or just, you know, content companies in general have found ways to reach out to people. And one way that you have done that with Seismanos is you've been running these Saturday watch parties. So how's that experience been? How did that come up? Uh, and, and, you know, what's that been like for you as the creative force behind this series? Well, it, it came up because some of our folks at the studio and you know i think daniel saw they were doing one for kipo and we talked about it and we're i think talking about it at the same time internally trying to figure out how to do some of these watch parties to just engage the audience a little bit more uh plus uh saturday morning cartoons was just a fun little idea to kind of frame it on but honestly uh from a selfish standpoint i miss daniel and alvaro very very much and i miss uh working on the series and most of the uh um, work that I've been doing while we're having this uptick that we've been talking about has been not necessarily on the creative side. Um, and so, uh, whether it was intentional or not, it's been a wonderful thing to re-engage with the guys and see people react to things, uh, you know, and feel the love for the show and listening to all these fan theories and things like that has just been it's an uplifting experience for me because you know, is getting outside of emails and spreadsheets and remembering why we do what we do at Powerhouse. Um, plus, you know, uh, I've been stuck in an office and I don't know how Alvaro and Daniel feel, but like even just the seeing them each tweet about stuff and tell jokes or send a meme or something like that, it's very reminiscent of the, <laughs> the process that we had working on the show. So it's been, I don't know, it's been very uplifting for me. You know, me too. Uh, there's a there's a strange experience that comes from you know having a project that you know, like most animated things, takes a year to animate. Takes you know so much time between the time that it's written, the time that it's recorded, the time that it's you know uh, animated, and then the time that it's released. And you go through this sort of surreal experience, like we went to San Diego Comic Con, went to New York Comic Con, and and uh, but this. Once it drops, it's dropped. And so there's, there's very little sort of like continuity that you would have with a show that's like, well, there's an episode coming out every week and you get to build your audience. It just like drops. And, uh, so we have, uh, you know, we've been trying to find ways in, in which to engage an audience. One of the great things about social media is that, you know, you get to see these sort of tendrils unfold and unfurl out globally you know people tweeting about it in europe or in south america you know months and months after the thing has been released so you know this kind of a thing with our saturday morning cartoon which is obviously ironic in the first place because it's an adult sort of animated cartoon um uh but you know this this sort of experience just just uh engages us as creators engages us as you know um people involved in the process and and it's uh it's really great experience to to see that again and see how this thing you know sort of has legs and uh and you know reaches audiences i mean i think i remember i mean i remember all of us going back and forth even before we got in the room just putting so much more than i ever had certainly i think into anything into this 
into even just developing it and fleshing it out and all of that stuff. And I remember, I don't remember the specific day, but I remember, I remember Alvaro and I talking about just like, cause I grew up on, I grew up on anime, you know, I grew up on like adult cartoons that I, I fell in love with. I was just surprised by just the level of like philosophical, uh, complexity you could do, uh, in the storytelling of that stuff. And, and I remember, then I remember thinking like, as we were, and this was, you know, part of the project all along, but like, just the realization like of what it would be like to have someone who has been a fanboy or girl like I was when I was younger of this stuff, like see this and see them and finally see themselves represented mm. um, in the show uh, in a way that I don't think has ever been done before. Like there hasn't been like a, a Latinx you know, show in this space and like what that would mean. And then we went to Comic-Con and we would see these people get in line and like be like crying and, and like telling us, like, I got to see myself up there. Like, I, I don't know. That was such an, an like a visceral and, and wonderful, like confirmation of like why this kind of thing matters. And then I don't know, A, the fun has been wonderful getting back and playing with these guys, but like also just, seeing all the people online have that same reaction, seeing all that same stuff on Twitter. Like, I don't even speak Spanish. I just see all these Spanish tweets going back and forth about it. And it just sort of like, I don't know. It like, I don't know. I feel like the Grinch with his heart growing 10 places bigger in those moments. <laughs> uh, speaking of the, the experiences that you have on social media while you're, while you're doing these watch parties, have you guys noticed more new fans coming to the series for the first time and like discovering it for the first time? Or do you see a lot of folks who had watched it at launch, had watched it since then, and are now coming back to kind of soak up more behind-the-scenes information that you guys are sharing out? I, I see a little bit of both. I mean, it, it, there are some, like, really uh, wonderful fans who have written great pieces and have, you know, commented on things that Alvaro has put out or, you know, others have put out or Powerhouse has put out. So, like, it's there's definitely a nice little core group of fans that are participating. But some of the best things is seeing their fan bases reacting to them talking about it and then introducing them to the show and getting new people involved. Um, they're definitely, and you know, it definitely helps when you have a show with, you know, uh, Angelica Valle or you know, Danny Trejo involved and, you know, their social media reach is so large. And so like you, you, there are a lot of new people coming in as we're talking about the work that they did on the show too. Yeah, and I wanted to talk a little bit about the representation, uh, Daniel, that you mentioned earlier too, because this show is is fantastic for kind of, and I don't want to belittle it, but sort of checking those boxes that a lot of productions are very keen on today. You know, a lot of uh, new productions are very tuned in to social commentary, to uh, diversity on the screen or on the on the page, as it might be. So what I love about Seismanos is you do kind of, you, you take those pains to make sure that folks who normally aren't represented get a chance to, to shine here. So what was kind of that maybe creation process going back a few years now about why it was important to focus on the particular characters that you do? Uh, that's a lot of years. <laughs> well, one of the things I think that is really important uh, in that regard is that there were never boxes to tick right. in Seismanos. Six Manos was, was about, you know, just telling a story. And this is just the world in which it happened to be set. So there was never any sort of like agenda. Well, let's, let's have this 
you know, this Latinx character or this African-American character or this Asian-American character or any of that kind of stuff. There was no there was no sort of uh, formula to it. It was just about these are the characters in this world. And it was just kind of a, a little bit of a, I don't know, complete surprise, but it was certainly surprising. It's like, you know, in talking to one of the voice actors uh, who I had met before, and I said, you know, this actor, Roger Craig Smith, who was the voice of Batman and Batman Ninja and mm-hmm. so many other things, and he plays Larry, the CIA operative, oh, yeah. and uh, or the DAO, or whatever he is, yeah. and uh, the, the government agent. And I was like, you know, you're basically the only white guy in the show. <laughs> and, uh, but it wasn't, you know, it, it wasn't even that it was like, uh, there was no intention behind it other than, you know, this is, this was our show. So in a way that was so much more liberating because we weren't trying, we weren't keeping a tally of boxes to check off um, no, I mean, in terms of representation. Like even before, like, I oh God, it's, I don't know how many years, like I, like El, when Alvaro and I first met, uh, which at this point, how, I don't know, how long have we been friends? Like six years, something like that? I think it's going on seven years. <laughs> like seven years. Like this, and this project predated that. Oh, wow. Like because, I remember, like, I remember, like, as, you know, as we were, like, getting to know each other very early on, him telling me about this, and, and I knew all these people in the animation space, because I'd been writing in that space for a long time, and, like, a lot of them, like, me and Brad Baby have this really dope thing, and so, like, they had had this sort of prior to that, and already seven years ago, this is before any, the wave of any, of, like, Hollywood catching up to the reality of the world or whatever, and, like, at that time, even just hearing about it from him in the nascent stage it was in, it was just like, well, this is just awesome because these are the things, these are the things that excite us to write about it and that we care about because they're really fun to write about. They're interesting and they're stories worth telling. And it's as simple as that. Um, and so for, I think, uh, thank, thank God Hollywood is sort of caught up to the reality of the world we live in, in all these sorts of ways like that, both from the diversity perspective, but also from the socio, for the, you know, sociological, political perspective, et cetera. But at that time we were all just kind of, I remember us running around preaching the gospel, everyone going like, I swear to God, this is awesome. And people want it. <laughs> and then going like, I don't know, man. And then, you know, uh, it, 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 the reality caught up with the show. Yeah. Al and I went around and pitched it many, many places for a couple of years before, you know, it really got around to, you know, getting picked up. But when it did, it kind of went really, really fast too. So like at the end of the day, it's, you know, like Al said, it wasn't an intention to check the box or to do something specifically. It just was one of those things where we wanted to make a, a badass show. We were both from Texas. It was kind of the natural story that mixed all the stuff that we loved, the grindhouse, the um, kung fu shows, all of that other things, and just happened to be that. And then, you know, we found two, you know, wonderful writers to work with, and it just it became what it was. There was never like a formulaic plan to it at all. Well, I know for me personally, the the first time I got a chance to see any of it or be introduced to any of it was 2017, back at the Rooster Teeth Animation Festival, where I forget I forget who was there, but you presented a kind of sizzle reel of a fight sequence that was more or less done. And that for I mean, me in the whole room, I was just kind of like jaws on the floor, like I need to see more of this. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, what's funny about it is like uh, everything, of course, is interlocked and. Um, uh, 
there's not a clear-cut story on, on all of it, but I think if I remember correctly, Fred Seibert and I were on a panel yep. uh, talking about animation, and that was when we had started Castlevania. That being said, Chase Monos was a fight choreography test that we did with Sam Deitch um, in the studio to try to go out and sell the show, um, and this was before Sam was working on Castlevania, and then we uh, he had done a whole bunch of really cool Naruto uh, fan art fight sequences and then we had the space models piece and that's what we used to go sell powerhouse to be the studio that worked on castlevania oh wow so like um wow. yeah castlevania and space models are actually tied into you know which came first chicken and the egg and there's not really uh, a clear-cut version of that because without the space models test i don't know that we would have got castlevania without uh castlevania it would have been hard to go out and sell a show like space models because uh, people weren't doing things like that at the time. Now you're going to see all these think pieces about how Castlevania and Seismanos are in the same powerhouse cinematic universe. So get ready for those fan theories if they're not out there already. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I have no, no. confirm that is not true. Even though in Seismanos there is a, an Easter egg where El Balde picks up a small little Alucard doll uh, in, in the market. So like we try to drop things like that in, in the shows, but uh, I think Warren Ellis would definitely uh, squash <laughs> the I think you made it officially canon accidentally there. And then like 20 years now when Alvaro and I and you are all sellouts, we can be like, yeah, dog, every powerhouse show happens in one universe and also Jurassic Park. And yeah. <laughs> I don't think I have to wait 20 years to be a sellout. I think. <laughs> well, now I'm going to have to go back and watch that for like a fifth time now because I think I missed the uh, the Alucard doll Easter egg. So I'll have to go back for that one. I think it's coming up in the next episode. Oh, perfect. Okay. I mean, buddy, I think it's even more salad because I think it kind of looks like a pop cap doll too. So hint, hint, congrats. <laughs> So speaking of that, this weekend, you guys are continuing the series of the Saturday Watch Parties, and I believe it's episodes five and six, so we've got Blindfold and Reunion coming up. Uh, anything you'd like to tease uh, for our listeners out there who are looking forward to the watch party for these episodes? Ooh. I mean, definitely be a part of them. Uh, <laughs> they are 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, uh, adult Saturday morning cartoon. Uh, get on Twitter, hashtag SaceManos, as all one word, hashtag S-E-I-S-M-A-N-O-S. And uh, join along with the fun. You can add us and we'll respond to you uh, unless <laughs> we don't see it. <laughs> um, we, just, like, we just make all sorts of silly jokes and tell stories from uh, from making the show and stuff like that. Um, and I usually have no idea what I'm talking about in terrible new homework, so I get real random. It's a lot of, it's, dude, it's so much fun. Honestly, adult Saturday anime morning cartoon is just a great idea anyway, now that like adult dark cartoons can come out right. in the United States, thanks largely to, uh, Powerhouse. Thank you, Powerhouse. Um, and like, that should be a thing anyway, honestly. For just, I just imagine some like tired 41 year old like mom and dad sitting there going like, I need a bloodbath. Just for some catharsis for two hours on Saturday morning. Exactly. I mean, well, great time. One thing that I, I I'm going to do is I have some outtakes from the record sessions, which were a lot. That was one of the highlights for working on the show was uh, getting in there and watching the scripts come to life that these guys put together. So I've got some uh, outtakes. I think of uh, until I get in trouble, I'm going to put out some of the Danny Coho <laughs> and the Mike Coulter. 
uh, different takes and even some stuff that was cut from the script. But uh, five and six are kind of like, I don't know. When I, don't, when, I, when I tried to prepare all the things to tweet, um, and I am a type A who pre-wrote every single tweet for episodes one and two uh, Saturday morning cartoon and had a folder where I labeled all of the different uh, uh, photos to post with them. Uh, I had 50-something for episode one just because, you know, there was so much yeah. that was packed into those episodes to explain from the Kung Fu to the Mexican cinema to, like, there's, there's just so much. And I ended up, like, only being able to put out half of the tweets that uh, I had pre-written. It was just, like, trying to, like, quickly copy and, copy and paste a whole bunch of stuff so rapidly five and six to me are similar and how much stuff is in them to episodes one and two like we established the show then we had fun in three and four and then five and six have just a lot of easter eggs and things that they were based on so like there's just quite a lot of uh things that need to be uh you know acknowledged because i don't know i, I always have fun seeing things that even i didn't remember like for instance we'll have this one shot of uh how uh they took shot for shot the killing of the little girl at the ice cream truck mm-hmm. uh, from assault on precinct 13 mm. and i had totally forgotten that it was shot for shot when they shot tioho the first time i was like oh my god yeah that, that's that, that was it <laughs> so i don't know five and six there's just a lot to talk about in there and i'm sure al will have some great things to put out too yeah, I just, I like going back and like, you know, looking at the script and taking some little screen grabs of, of the script page and even some notes, uh, just cause it's fun to kind of go back and look. And then also, you know, just to sort of, uh, spill my cinema, you know, fan guts about, oh, this was a reference to, you know, this movie or this was influenced by this, this movie. Uh, and just, you know, just sort of lay it all bare on the table, open kimono, as we say. I mean, yeah, stuff, I mean, especially in the writing and editing process, like our first draft of the pilot was like, God, I don't know, 34 pages or something like that. And they're like, there are so many little things in there. Like if we had an unlimited budget, it would have been amazing. Like there's like a, there's a sequence where like that, like monster guy just straight up murders a bunch of coyotes and running through the desert. We couldn't do like, and I know there's a ton of that in every episode. Um, it's just like fun, but it's just like at a certain point, you have to sort of like, you know, pace it out for time and stuff like that. That, uh, that there's nuggets all over. They're fun to throw back up. Yeah, I was wondering what your guys' homework process was kind of like for, for having to research all that stuff and how much you were just like, oh, I've been waiting to let somebody know about this or like, oh, wow, I didn't even, <laughs> I didn't remember that we were trying to do that kind of thing. So it's been fun to watch along and, and kind of unearth all that historical, almost archived uh, trivia. It's been really cool. When you guys were actually, you know, over the last decade or so kind of developing this, there's so much to pull from and so many things, you know, even as hyper-specific as like that one scene from Assault on Precinct 13 or any of the kind of either black exploitation roles or the sort of uh, 70s grindhouse cinema or any of the Chinese martial arts movies or any of that stuff. So how did you even begin to boil all that stuff down into what would become Seis Manos. How did you make those decisions? Uh, it's a good question, and correct me if I'm wrong, guys, but I think probably mm-hmm. the best way to answer that is we all came from, like, a different space, but all worked re- really well together 
to kind of put in our specific loves and wants and then boil that down and make something that was completely unique to it. So like at, at the end of the day, I'm really interested in fight choreography and the old Shaw Brothers Kung Fu stuff. And like I would always, there's lots of stuff like Daniel said that we didn't necessarily get to include in the series, but like I would push for more of that stuff. Al has this amazing cinematic knowledge of all these, you know, 70s era grindhouse films, and he would share little clips from that. I would send, you know, a Taoist book to the guys. They would say I needed to, you know, watch this one black exploitation film. Daniel would make reference to different anime things from the past, and it kind of created, you know, a new thing through those different interests and us all kind of pushing and pulling on one another. Oh. Yes, yeah. I mean, I remember Alvaro put me through black exploitation school as part of the homework that we were doing, which was awesome, by the way. Oh my God, it was phenomenal. I actually totally ripped off a line from a movie called Truck Turner uh, and threw it in there just because it's one of the best things I've ever heard a human being say in a movie, uh, which is pretty. But I, yeah, it was like, a, it was such a wonderful Venn diagram, you know? Like, I'm obsessed with like, the CIA running roughshod over Central and South America. Mm -hmm. So like this was an opportunity to talk through some of that stuff in, you know, in a, in a, in a, uh, uh, fiction narrative and stuff like that. And, you know, we were all fans of Grindhouse, but like Brad's like, Brad is like Kung Fu with a bullet. And Alvaro is basically a human criterion collection. Um, it's just, yeah, it's just a wonderful collection of people throwing the stuff they love together in a way that I think ended up being, feeling really organic. Yeah, and it, it feels like that, too, from a viewer's perspective. It's just kind of, it's amazing how well it all works together. But it also feels like if they were making these kinds of uh, anime series, you know, in the 70s at this quality, it feels like a story that would have just come out of those, <laughs> out of that era. Like, it feels very much derived from it and of a piece. Uh, but whose decision was it or whose idea was it to put that kind of grainy, sort of burned and sometimes split filter over uh, over a lot of the animated scenes? That was Willis Bolner, the director, and Ash Conroe. And I think, you know, we all talked about it, but the way that they did it, like, it's hard to imagine the show without that. So, like, you know, um, but they did it in a really creative way. I mean, not only do the cigarette burns happen in the show when they should happen, you know, mathematically, uh, but it, they also kind of turn it up and turn it down depending upon you know, the darkness of the scene and what's going on in the scene. And so, you know, uh, I think that they really do it in a unique and creative way that's never been explored before. Yeah, to have seen it not just applied, but to have been, like, utilized sort of thematically and tonally dependent on what is happening, mm -hmm. I was so blown away by that choice. Yeah, it was incredible. I think personally, one of my favorite splits, uh, maybe in an episode that hasn't come up in your watch party yet. I think it's, I think it's the seventh one, maybe the eighth one, but it's right after a major reveal and right before the jump to like the intro title sequence. There's a great split, like the film runs out or the film breaks, and then it jumps. Yeah. I love that. That was fantastic. Yeah. So that's the seven. And what's funny about that is. You know, uh, animation is a very iterative process. Like Al said earlier, you know, it's just such a long distance between scripts and records and all that other sort of stuff. And I was so worried about that one. And it wasn't until the sound got in there mm. that I was like, oh, this will work. 
because like when you see it in an animatic and there's not that you know that rundown sound you're like oh this is gimmicky this may not work but willis really stood behind it and then when uh the guys at tvd post brad ingle king all those guys put the uh the sounds in there, you're like, oh, crap, yeah, that's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> now, we've talked a lot about kind of where you all pulled from for inspiration, but you also have your own kind of unique and original mythology that, to be honest, is only kind of getting going here in season one. Like, there's a lot of nuggets, there's a lot of breadcrumbs and teases. But Maybe walk me through some of that, you know, developing your own mythology for this original property. Well, you know, part of the thing that I was always fascinated by, you know, in the, in the telling of this story as, as it started to come together was, you know, I love the mythology. I love, I love all that stuff. Um, so finding, finding elements that, you know, were basically based on, on like the cult of the Santa Muerte or something like that, but, but creating the Santa Nucifera. Mm. Nucifera is, you know, like a Latin, uh, for one of the lotus, one of the types of lotus. So, uh, you know, now we had this sort of like potential crossover between a Santa Muerte and, you know, we're at one point calling the Lady of the Lotus. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, but it was all, you know, it was basically all invented. You know, it wasn't based on anything except, uh, you know, sort of like putting our own spin on, on the mythology that already existed. Uh, we were obviously really interested also in, you know, this sort of, uh, thing that happens with syncretism, you know, where Catholicism, you know, is sort of, uh, pasted over, you know, the indigenous religions and all that kind of stuff. And, and so in building all of these things, it was kind of like this, uh, this, this sort of mishmash of, uh, of all these different cultures and all these different, you know, uh, schools of thought and the idea of the goddess and, um, there were just, you know, even in some Egyptian mythology kind of things with the sarcophagus and, and, uh, but it all seemed plausible in this space, which I thought was really cool. Yeah. And Al's invention of, uh, of Santa Lucifera too, like the whole, just the whole lotus aspect of it melded so well. And then, uh, as part of our, like, big homework stuff we did, Brad, Brad had us read, you know, the Tao, <laughs> uh, and go through it and go through a really great translation of it, uh, and all that sort of stuff. And so, you know, obviously there's, like you said, a bouillabaisse of like Chinese mythology. So the, the, the Lotus creation, the wonderful thing that all came up with melded so naturally with things related, uh, that we pulled from in the Chinese mythology space. Um, and to, and sort of, you know, what all of that sort of ended up doing, I think in a really interesting way. I mean, you're not wrong, uh, sir, in that we definitely quite intentionally l- built it as a breadcrumb trail. Mm. Um, and part, partly pragmatic, I know uh, when I came into the project, part of that was that uh, Netflix was actually asking us to, to include in the sort of like sales pitch of it what a three-season arc would look like. Right. And so we intentionally built a three-season arc for the show, uh, which required that in season one, we do it in a way that it is, is setting up essentially uh, act one of a three-act three tale. Uh, and so that's, you're right, a lot of that is meant to pay off. Uh, in the future, in future seasons. Yeah, and a lot of it was like great research on the guy's part, and then also a lot of really cool synchronicity that that happened. Like the, uh, you know, El Balde is a little based on, uh, you know, Adolf Constanzo, you know, and the murders that happened in Matamortis in the eighties. Um, and he had Magangas, which were these, you know, buckets that they kind of did these rituals with. 
And then when we visited uh, Curandero in Austin to learn more about the process and make sure everything in the background was correct and all that, they actually had one and talked about how uh, you could uh, use it to control the spirit of a witch or something like that. Mm-hmm. And then that, that, that was already in the script that Al had, oh, okay. but it was this whole kind of uh, synchronicity that happened across the project. And they, like Al and Dan did so much research and went, yeah, there's <laughs> uh, Dan on video is showing us one of his little uh, Santa Muertes that he got from uh, uh, the current Dara shop. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, it, we, we did everything from looking at voodoo books. I remember long conversations about that. Uh, Al and Dan went and uh, visited a Dallas priest out there in, in Burbank and had conversations with him. I mean, there's there's definitely a unique universe that pulls a lot of different threads together. Um, but, you know, th- there was a lot of time spent making sure that we got it as authentic as possible. Yeah. We're also big Joseph Campbell heads, a lot of us. So there's... I, I'm always such a fan of like the Ermis and the idea of the, you know, all, 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 all myths, all myths are one myth and that kind of thing too. Uh, and just the way it ever, if you, if you look at all mythology, religion, faith, all of this, if you find so many just sort of like strand, identical strands running through everyone's sort of like stories for how and why things are the way they are. Well, I'm happy we get to add Seismanos mythology uh, to that, to that list and hopefully get to see more of that in the future. But as a quick aside, are you guys working with like Insight Editions, anybody on a behind-the-scenes book? Because I feel like there's such a wealth of information and inspiration and art that most people probably won't get to see but would love to. Are you working on anything like that? Not right now. I mean, we would love to. I mean, part of the hope of these Saturday morning cartoon watch parties and all of this is that, you know, the audience continues to build and the interest happens and you know we kind of get those tendrils out into other parts of uh, the social media world and more people are introduced to the show um but you know right now i think about a book like that all the time and <laughs> nothing more than to put together a book like that and i'm sure al and dan feel the same way um but like right hey, now, uh, unfortunately tell all your friends about us and tell them to tell their friends about us and i'll give you all the merch you want <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's part of why we're here. You know, my, my buddy and I have been running this particular podcast for years and years, but I'm happy and, and privileged and honored to be able to talk to folks like you who are bringing original productions into the world. Adaptations are great. Adaptations can bring, uh, you know, a nostalgic property into the contemporary times and really do something interesting with it. We've seen that a lot in recent years. But there are fewer and fewer, it feels like, original kind of projects. Now, this, I believe, was Powerhouse's first original series overall. Is that correct? That's correct. So what's kind of the, I don't know what I want to say as far as like the outlook, but let's just get the elephant out of the room here. Season two, what do we have to do <laughs> as a community, as an industry, what do we have to do to move that needle to, so you guys can say, yeah, season two is a go and we're working on it? I, I have an idea that uh, no one, I don't think anyone will agree with, but I, I think I, my master plan continues to be get a really famous rapper to tweet about at the mm-hmm. bus. <laughs> Because everyone who loves hip hop loves kung fu, man. That's fucking fact. I desperately want to tell that we we were lucky enough to where we were able to write season two, and okay. uh, the scripts are so good. Uh, it's so good. Okay. It's so good. Uh, Al wrote a script uh, that uh, has this amazing metaphor to another uh, famous kung fu movie that. 
I, I want to make so, so bad. Um, but, uh, you know, yeah, it's, it's, I have so no bad. memory of any of it. <laughs> No memory of any of it. Uh, no, I mean, uh, yeah, we, we wrote a second season. You know, we, we had talked about our third season. We're, we're, you know, we're guardedly optimistic. But part of, I guess, the idea is, yeah, we're going to hope that we can continue, um, you know, spreading the word and building that audience and growing that audience and, you know, uh, and just trying to get get exposure out there. And then that, I think that's the... Usually that, that's, that's always been the sort of, uh, the thing that stops things in, in their tracks is just like a lack of exposure. Yeah. Um, and I feel like, you know, Seis Manos, for whatever reason, just sort of slipped through those cracks and didn't get the kind of exposure, um, that an original IP needs to get in order for it to gain traction. Yeah. You know, and so, uh, you know, that, that, that's why, you know, some of this social media stuff has been so valuable in that it's, you know, um, it, it's continued to give that, give some exposure to it. But we really are sort of, you know, we're sort of still waiting for our, our, our real breakout. And, um, uh, and, uh, yeah, I'm not sure what's going to be the thing that, that changes that. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, we, I mean, we loved we loved the property, we loved the project, and we loved the stories that we were telling and the characters that we were building, and and um, I mean, and we'd I, love to be able to keep doing that. I can tell you, I have not had more fun uh, or been more proud of a season of television than I've been. I've been involved with a lot of wonderful things and continue to be, but that season two batch of Space Monos, it just it pulls so much of the mythology together. It's uh, I, I will. I will, I'm just going to say this. I'm just going to throw this out there as a as a lure for people. It's just somewhere in there is a baboon in a mech with a flamethrower. Oh, I'm not going to say why or how we got that in there. You somehow hit, you somehow hit all my specific things that I look for. <laughs> somehow. It, it, it really is so good. Um, but yeah, I, I, I do think. I, I do think the show will eventually find its audience. I mean, I'm hoping it's sooner rather than later. And again, you know, the animation landscape is changing. And, you know, I, I do think there's a thread to hit with this series. And we're just trying to find out and do our best to make sure that we do hit that thread. I will make you guys this deal. I will work on getting a world-famous rapper to get into Seis Manos, if they're not already, much like, you know, the Wu-Tang Clan members have been for a very long time. Uh, if... If I can get, you know, maybe some confirmation or a nod that a master of a flying guillotine maybe shows up in season two or three, you know. I guarantee that. <laughs> Perfect deal done. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, all, all kidding aside, Tuca and Birdie was uh, uh, very kind of uh, socially aware and conscious and it was out there in the zeitgeist. And then it was it was axed really before it could find its audience. But this week we saw that a season two was picked up by... Adult Swim. So I feel like there are audiences and there are uh, arenas for these types of shows. So I don't know if you guys can talk about it or not, but are you able to look outside of Netflix or are you just currently waiting to to see what your your numbers are or what their decision ultimately is? I want to I'm just going to slowly turn and look at Brad for whatever <laughs> he wants to talk about that question. <laughs> I mean, I mean, right, right now, we're hoping that it finds an audience on Netflix right. and that that audience continues to grow. I mean, you know, there, there's, 
a time period where things can move to other places. Um, but for what it's worth, you know, at, at Tuca and Birdie is a wonderful show. And I think, you know, maybe it, on Cartoon Network, it might be the right place for it. I still believe that this is a great, that Space Monos is a streaming show and that, you know, it, Netflix is the proper place for a show like that. Um, but, you know, it, uh, it's, it's difficult to say what will happen long term, but, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that it finds an audience here on Netflix. Yeah, I would say the same thing. I mean, we had great partners with Viz and Netflix. When we first met with Netflix, uh, with Viz, you know, and Viz came on board and then we went together to talk to Netflix, you know, uh, Netflix were so encouraging and so like, it was a very liberating thing. One of the things that they, you know, that was said in that meeting has always stuck with me, which was, you know, don't try to put something in here that's going to appeal to a particular demographic. And like, you got to find the thing that's going to make 13 year old boys want to watch this or 16 year old girls or people from this, you know, whatever the demographics are, just be as authentic to your story as possible. Because the more authentic it is, the more universal it will be. And, uh, and, you know, so, you know, when you're getting that kind of of advice you're getting those kinds of guidelines you know going into the process you can't help but want to be in business with those kind of people yeah. and so you know netflix and biz and powerhouse and and you know the sort of collaboration that we've all been a part of with our voice cast you know it's like everyone feels really invested in the show and invested in the stories that we were telling and uh and you know that's something we just want to we want to try to to keep going as much as possible. Yeah. They just absolutely, on, from a, on a creative level too, they're just so wonderful to play with and just compassionate and smart and like, I mean, supportive, obviously, everyone has said, but it's a great space to play. And I can second all that too. From all the folks I've talked to on Netflix productions, they seem fans and friends to genre. Like they, they are one of the, the platforms out there, maybe the top who was willing to kind of push that envelope and allow a wider range of, of genre and uh, perspective and, and all kinds of stuff. So uh, pushing for season two on Netflix, let's hope. But uh, as we kind of wrap up or start to wind down here today, I want to bring it back to kind of a character focus for a second. We mentioned earlier how great Seismanos is at delivering characters, uh, maybe underrepresented characters. I specifically love Silencio as a, a mute character, but also Lena as his, his partner who, uh, you know, is differently abled. I don't know if we ever get the, the background on her or not as to why she uh, lost a hand, but I love the fact that they have this relationship and you show it how they complement each other, uh, especially in like the guitar playing scene. Was Silencio and Lena, were they always part of the script early on? Silencio was. Lena uh, was not necessarily part of the script early on, but, uh, but I think that that backstory did get told in either three or four, um, in a, in a scene where, where they're, I guess it's after they're, they've, uh, made the plan to leave, you know, oh, uh, leave San Simone. And then, you know, Lena confesses, you know, her, her, her role in, in, uh, knowing about Father Serrano and right. knowing about, you know, Valde and all of this stuff. Um, but no, I mean, again, that, the idea about like, representing differently abled characters it wasn't it wasn't like i can't say it wasn't intentional but it wasn't like ticking off a box thing too it, it there was just something that was so natural to this idea of, of of the way that um those two characters 
find themselves. And it's something I've always been sort of fascinated by, you know, um, but just the idea, like, like the guitar scene, mm-hmm. the, the Malombre scene is so, um, iconic in, in that it, it represents how these two people complement each other and how they could, you know, together make, you know, make something that didn't exist before, the, how their relationship itself is this, you know, this sort of, um, this sort of new thing, you know, not that they're not each individually whole in themselves, but now there's a, there's a new thing that's created that only exists because of their relationship. And, um, and, you know, there's just something that's very, there's something that's very sexy about that. And there's something that's just really, um, you know, really touching about that too. Uh, because they both, they were both sort of made this way by Obalde. And that's, that's the reveal that Lena, you know, um, uh, provides us too. And, uh, go ahead. I just said spoiler alert. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we, that, that episode is already shown. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, there's so, um, you know, I think that's some, that there's something that sort of absolute freedom of, of, uh, of being able to tell a story without looking towards, you know, checking out boxes or particular agenda. It's just like, let's, let's just, uh, let's just explore all of our, of our loves and all of our, uh, you know, the things that inspire us, things we have affinities for, you know, yeah. from Mexican cinema to, um, you know, mythology and all these other things and how they blend into this one space. And, um, and uh, that's how all of these, you know, all of these things came, came to be. It's yeah. just from opening ourselves to that. Yeah. Garcia actually being a female police officer mm-hmm. came about organic too. That was, that was, that was entirely because we were doing a bunch of research on that period. So we could draw things from real history in that space and found out that right around the time period that the show had been placed in, that women had, at that moment, begun to uh, achieve civil rights in Mexico and specifically be allowed to become police officers for the first time. And so that ma- it was just like, what an interesting story to explore that fits so well within the context of the world that we're building. You know, yeah, all the initial decks that we pitched up until we got into actually writing the real show, you know, Garcia was a dude. Um, and just it's so hard to even imagine that as a thing now but yeah he was uh, another guy with a mustache and the relationship with Chris was completely different and it was just one of those revelations that totally changed exactly what the show ended up becoming well I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, not what's the word I'm gonna respectfully disagree in that that idea did not come about organically that idea actually came from one of the executives at Netflix oh cool Uh, yeah remember yeah no, I, I, that was my idea. No, that, that, that was Taiki's idea. Taiki said, we need more, we need more, uh, you need to have another woman character in this show. You should think about this. And that's where the Garcia becoming Garcia, Officer Garcia, the woman came from. And it just like, it made so much sense in the room at the time. It's like, of course it should be a female cop. That's, Maybe. that's, yeah. I feel like when Brad Woods first called me, I was like, this is one of the three things I think you should do. Because I had done all that reading on Wikipedia about that time period. All right, I'll, I'll, I'm going to share it. I'll share it with Taiki. We'll try to share that it with Taiki. The point is- collective unconscious, yeah. No, that's, that's great. So all the things that you guys just talked about are just some of the many, many reasons that folks should be checking out Seis Manos for, I mean, 
beyond the incredible action and the original mythology and just like the fun of the series itself. But because I'm about out of time with you guys, I wanted to give you a chance uh, while we wait to hear more on Say Mono Season 2. What else are you all currently up to, either at Powerhouse or, or kind of in your own creative path? I'll, I'll go first because it's, it's easy, easy <laughs> for us. So we're working on uh, He-Man and the Masters of the Universe for our friends at Netflix and Mattel, uh, which is going along extremely well and we're super excited about. Um, we're working on Heaven's Forest, uh, which is a uh, another show with Warren Ellis and Kevin Caldy and also for Netflix. And then, uh, you know, we... Uh, Season three of Castlevania came out fairly recently, mm-hmm. uh, and we're, we're working on more stuff for that as well. So, like, at the end of the day, uh, it's uh, everybody's still pushing. We've got three or four shows in development. There's another show uh, called Blood of, uh, Blood of Zeus, Gods and Heroes, uh, which is based on Greek mythology. So that one's in post right now, and uh, things are firing on all cylinders. Very cool. I'm, uh, what am I doing now? I'm running, I'm, uh, finishing up running the second season of an adult animated sci-fi action genre show, uh, for HBO Max that I cannot name specifically. Interesting. Uh, yeah, but it's, uh, it's the second season, so the first season's already out and the show is wonderful. Um, it's Duke and Birdie, it's Duke and Birdie. Right. <laughs> <laughs> It, it takes a really hard left turn into a uh, serious sci-fi action <laughs> season. Um, what else? A variety of other de- uh, development projects uh, that are all having fun in Lawyerland, and um, yeah, like the things are wonderful. It's it's a blast to be able to write wearing Uggs in my house, um, you know, and uh, look forward to that show that I can't name when it comes out, and all the wonderful powerhouse. I've been. Uh... After Safe Manos, um, I went to New York to work on a Showtime series that we were about to start shooting when everything shut down uh, called Rust with Jeff Daniels uh, attached to Star. I'm hoping that we will get back to that once the fog lifts. Uh, in the meantime, I'm trying to uh, work on a couple of other projects uh, with some international uh, television companies to develop a TV series. Um, one could be a limited series, one might be an ongoing series. So um, that's that's what I've been doing. But I've been kind of more in the uh, live action space. Um, but always looking for opportunities to get back into the animation space, particularly with these guys. Absolutely. Yeah, I should say that I can't get too specific, but there is something another original that we all built that we're we're trying to we're trying to figure out uh, getting out there as well. Uh, that is very exciting and spooky. And I can say nothing more about it. (laughs) Well, that's a perfect tease to end the conversation on. So thank you guys again so much for your time today. Thank you even more for Seismanos. Uh, I can't wait for folks out there to either see it for the first time or catch up with you guys during Saturday's watch parties. And hopefully we hear a season two renewal soon. So fingers crossed. Thank you guys so much again and have a great day. Thank you. Take care. Thank you. Bye.